0: Welcome to Pull Back, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. And today we're reintroducing an episode that we put out last year that we're actually still really proud of that is relevant to this month because this is our Veganuary episode. And I don't know that we really need to update it too much. So we're deciding to re-release this episode and we're going to be re-releasing other episodes throughout the year. So if you have already listened and you decide, oh, I I don't need to hear this anymore, then in our off weeks when we're not putting out new content, you can go ahead and skip this stuff. But I found re-listening to our episodes myself recently. We 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 had to binge listen to our own show for the first time and I think I think it holds up and I actually relearned a bunch of stuff. So I encourage anyone who did listen to this last year to have another go because sometimes you have to hear information more than once for it to sink in. <laughs> what about you, Kristen? How do you feel about this one?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think our Veganuary episode, it was a good one. Uh, we had lots of fun with it. I also am continually... Surprised by how much I forget about each of the episodes that we do. <laughs> that was my biggest takeaway, i binging it.
0: They're our episodes, yeah. And I, at the time, found it really difficult to do the Veganuary Challenge, and now, a year later, it's actually really cool to reflect on how far I have come personally and I think it's really cool for any of our listeners who were with us last year to reflect on that themselves, because it just takes a little bit of effort, and it snowballs. I find I'm I'm almost like I'm almost entirely plant based now.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm probably either in the same place as I was uh, when we recorded Veganuary, or maybe slightly. Maybe I've slightly fallen backwards a little bit. I've been eating a lot of cheese lately for sure. So.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Actually, I I do eat a lot of like uh in between. Uh, sometimes I'll I'll be going from one job to another and there's like a pizza place in between them so I'll sl- I'll stopping at like a slice of cheese pizza. That's the one- but I haven't had a a hamburger in like at least a month or two when the flooding in BC happened. It just I don't know. It was the it was the one thing that really made climate change feel real even though I've been talking about climate change for what over two years with you Kristen I don't know I guess it takes a natural disaster in your backyard to make you go like holy shit what am I doing I need to stop fucking around
1: for sure yeah and what I really liked about this week January episode is that we went into some practical tips for you know what are some secret sources of meat that you might not know about if you are sort of trying to eat less meat uh, and to get animal products out of your diet. We also talked a little bit about the whiteness problem in veganism, which I think is a really important topic to cover. So definitely I would recommend taking a re-listen of this for those topics. And uh, you know, you might also wanna go way back to our vegetarianism episode uh, because we do talk as well about the planet and plant-based diets. So after you listen to this one, if you loved it, maybe also give the vegetarianism episodes a listen.
0: Lovely. And with no further ado, here we go.
1: Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. (laughs) Trying to be a good person can be overwhelming in our complex global marketplace. In this podcast, we try to make it a little easier by looking at the details behind consumer movements, product labels, and ethical lifestyles. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned. Fuck-ups and all. This episode, we're talking about veganism because it is veganuary. Ooh,
0: happy veganuary. Oh, and happy new year. I guess we didn't say that in the vegetarianism episode because we actually recorded that like a thousand years ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Happy new year. I hope people are still sticking to their new year's resolutions or their corporate mission statements, as the case may be. (laughs) But yeah, um, so Kyla, you've, uh, both of us have been going vegan for the last two weeks, and how do you feel?
0: Oh, okay, we're going to go right into it. You're just going to call me out right away. Oh, no, we can do the challenges later. I just
1: wanted to do like a quick check-in before we talk about veganism. (laughs)
0: Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, So I knew I was going to be doing Veganuary, so in December, I did this really fun activity where I wrote down every time I ate meat for Mm. a month.
1: That's so interesting.
0: Yeah. Because I was like, okay, I want to know what I'm missing when I go into Veganuary. January. So I ate meat. (laughs) Okay, that now sounds depressing. (laughs) (laughs) No, oh, oh, no, not like that. I just, I wanted to see how hard, because I was like, oh, Veganuary won't be too hard. And I was like, well, maybe it will be if I eat meat every day. And I just don't think about it. Like, oh, I thought you were like cataloging the individual items. Like, oh, I had a steak on this day. (laughs) I mean, I did. I did catalog the individual items. So I'll tell you right now, in (laughs) December, I ate meat on 12 days. But I feel like a couple of them shouldn't count because on one day I had half of a piece of bacon because everyone around me was eating like this giant plate of bacon and it had smelled like bacon in the apartment for like a couple hours. And so I had half of one <laughs> piece. So I failed that day. Um, not that I was doing anything um, in December special, but I did have to write that down. So <laughs> three of the days uh, I only ate fish, which I feel pretty good about. I don't feel that bad about eating fish. We haven't done a fish episode yet. Uh, one of the days was accidental because I ordered (laughs) an egg McMuffin from McDonald's forgetting that it comes with ham. I thought it was just going to be egg and cheese. That was my bad. And then, uh, on six of the days it was cheeseburgers. (laughs) So my problem seems to be cheeseburgers mostly, uh, if I was being honest. (laughs) We can go into Veganuary a little bit later, but how are you finding it so far?
1: So a lot easier than last time I did a short, like, veganism challenge. That was really hard last time. Mostly because at the time, I didn't really drink any alternative milks. And so when your first introduction to like soy milk and almond milk is in coffee that you've not necessarily like matched the flavors to and you're used to like putting cream, which like was what I was used to and I really liked at the time, it was like a legitimate psychological barrier for me. But a couple years, like, that was a couple years ago, and now, that's not a, a challenge at all, because I've been basically drinking alternative milks
0: instead of dairy for a while. So, yeah. Just have black coffee. Buy coffee that's so nice that you don't need to dress it up. I
1: know, yeah. Well, I don't... I, I'm a coffee wuss, so... <laughs> I like I like my blonde <laughs> roasts, and I like, uh, I like it with some soy milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll maybe talk about the challenge more in more detail after we've gone through veganism. But I suppose it's, it, it was kind of interesting prepping the research for this episode because a lot of the same justifications that you would use for vegetarianism, they just apply to veganism and you just kind of make the argument a little bit more consistent.
0: Uh, so then you're having trouble basically uh, making this different from the vegetarianism episode. You're like, what do we talk about to make it stand out?
1: Well, at first I thought that, but then um, as I started to look into like the history of the veganism movement, there are actually a lot of um, complicated elements of it that like they don't so much has to do with the justification. The justification is mostly a combination of like animal rights, a little bit of environmental stuff, although that tends to be less important to vegans. Vegans tend to emphasize animal rights more. Um, and then some people do it for health reasons too, but that's not really an ethical thing but then um if you look at like where veganism and vegan activists have gone over time there's a lot of like sort of complicated um intersections with other like with other movements that have been problematic
0: yeah you texted me something about nazis <laughs> yeah so we will talk a little bit about
1: that and i want to emphasize that i don't think that's like a a diss on veganism. Like, I think you can, be, <laughs> you can be a vegan just because you think factory farms are horrific, and that's a totally fair position to take. Um, but there are animal rights activists that haven't been the most woke, let's say, and in some cases have been liberal
0: <laughs> Nazis. So <laughs> it's not great. Uh, let's get into it. Tell me, tell me about veganism.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, first of all, veganism is, although I think a lot of vegans would say that their history is really tied to vegetarianism, and so it is a much older movement. The term veganism actually wasn't coined until 1944, so it is pretty recent, Um, and it was basically there's this British guy named Donald Watson um, who died about uh, 15 years ago, and he essentially said People in the vegetarian movement that don't eat dairy and don't eat eggs need like a separate term to describe themselves. So we need to be able to come up with that. Um, And he brought a bunch of his vegetarian friends together to try to come up with what the new term would be. So that's essentially how the vegan society came to be founded. So we've got about like a 60, 70 year history of, of veganism. Essentially, veganism is, as it's sort of self-described, it's a philosophy and a way of living that seeks to exclude all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose. And by extension, it promotes the development and use of animal-free alternatives. So those are the two sort of components of what it means to be a vegan. And as we mentioned in the vegetarianism episode, um, it is more of a way of life, so in this episode, we decided that we were going to focus on vegan diets. Um, so we're not going to focus on animal products that are in makeup or animal products that are in clothing. Clothing, yeah. So it's just that would be way too much to talk about. We'll do other episodes on that. So uh, just to say though that for vegans, in a lot of cases, not wearing leather is equally important to not eating cheese. We're not focusing on that in this episode, but that is a really important part to acknowledge. So I'll also say vegetarianism is, like, kind of mainstream now, um, and veganism is still a little bit more on the fringe. So it's a lot harder to do, not because... In like theory, it's hard to feed yourself without eggs or dairy. That's actually pretty easy. But but just because our society is set up around foods that have dairy and eggs and other animal derivatives just sort of in them. There's hidden meat and everything, as we mentioned in our vegetarian episode. Yeah, it's so fucked. Why do salt and vinegar chips have secret animal products in it? Why?
0: I was going to talk about this in the (laughs) challenge part of the episode, but I went, because we're doing Veganuary, I went to buy, like, some Campbell's soup. I was like, oh, I'll get some vegetable soup. I'll just stock my cupboard so that if I get hungry, I need a snack. I'll have, like, a little thing of soup. All of the vegetable soups were using beef broth or (laughs) egg whites. And I was like, why? Why?
1: (laughs) Why you got to be like that? But yeah, whereas vegetarian, vegetarianism is mainstream enough that, like, you pretty much always have an option on a restaurant menu, like, especially if you're, like, in a city and... Usually, um, it's like relatively easy to get products that don't have like gelatin in it or whatever. But for vegans, that pendulum's starting to move, but it still is a lot harder um, just because we have like secret meat and everything. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Veganuary as well, just to emphasize how new this is, right? Veganuary was actually only started in 2014, it's an incredibly new initiative. So it was started by a British charity um, and since then it's really grown. So if you're, for our like typical Canadian listener, you may not have heard of Veganuary before because um, it's not as popular here, but in the UK, it's really big. In 2019, the charity Veganuary had 25 or 250,000 people that pledged to go vegan for January.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And that makes total sense because I had never heard of Veganuary until like two years ago, which is when I was living in London. So Mm -hmm. that makes sense. I I didn't know that. I was like, oh, it is really new because I've only just heard of it. But also it's just like not as big here. So let's make it a thing.
1: Yeah. It's like... It's only really been around for five years, um, and probably when they were first founded, like, I I would imagine that there wasn't a 2014 Veganuary. Probably the first one was 2015, if they were founded in 2014. Really, in, like, a short period of time, they've gone from zero, like, absolutely the initiative doesn't exist, to, to now
0: they've got... A quarter of a million people.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's probably even bigger this year because they've been growing every year, so Veganuary is likely to... To just continue going gangbusters, I think.
0: I love it. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and so
1: in addition to like getting individuals to pledge to do to go vegan for January, and sometimes people try to do it for longer. Veganuary also draws participation from companies, so it's a way of mainstreaming the vegan movement more broadly um, and like getting um, organizations and companies to launch plant-based parts of their menu or to launch plant-based products. So. I think that's really cool as well. Veganuary is also supported by some mainstream celebrities. The only one that they have listed on their website that I actually had heard of before was Joaquin Phoenix, but um, I do not know pop culture, so...
0: <laughs> well, maybe I'll have a look at their website. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but Joaquin Phoenix, actually, he was um, the one of the forces behind lobbying
0: for the all-vegan menu at the Golden Globes this year, which... Um, is pretty cool. Yeah, that was awesome. I saw that. And people were like tweeting like jokes about it. I was like, were you there? No, chill.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think it's pretty cool. So the people behind Veganuary are in some way connected to getting the Golden Globes to be vegan. And that's all part of um, make just making it easier for people that don't want to consume animal products to just be in the world because it is relatively difficult. So why veganism then? We talked a little bit about how the justifications aren't so different from vegetarianism. Um, And I also want to say that there's a wide spectrum of vegans and they all have slightly different justifications for their lifestyle choice. But the sort of unifying thread is that almost all of them will view animal welfare as one of the main reasons. A lot of, I I think that that's like a difference uh, with vegetarianism. That even though there are environmental vegans and environmental vegetarians, there are more vegetarians that say their primary reason is the environment, you know. Um, which kind of makes sense because it allows you to be a little bit more inconsistent on the the fact that dairy farming is also really bad for cows, you know.
0: Yeah, it's and eggs production is like really not great either unless you literally know the chicken you're getting the eggs from.
1: <laughs> it's true, yeah. Um and so from an animal welfare perspective vegans essentially argue that vegetarianism doesn't cut it for for the, that reason basically
0: Well and I think I don't know if I left this in the vegetarianism episode or if it got uh if it hit the uh, editing room floor <laughs> but cheese is like made with enzymes from the gut of animals so a lot of animals are often killed in the cheese industry i I think i did leave this in but and also i was going to share it because it's really hard to describe but basically if you're eating cheese it's not even really vegetarian even in some cases because animals were killed in the making of it and i didn't know that until very recently and it was very upsetting for me
1: well and that's even the case for like um if you're if you're consuming eggs or dairy like the The cow that's milked gets killed eventually, and the chickens that are breeding, they also get killed, right? They're called spent chickens. It's it is kind of messed up, right? So if you, how old do
0: they usually get? Do you know?
1: Yeah, I don't, but um, I'm sure I could find. Let's a not look that up. And- yeah,
0: <laughs> no, no, I don't want to. Know. Yeah, they don't
1: live a full <laughs> life, and they, I mean, just the way that breeding on factory farms uh, is done now, like. The typical lifespan for a cow or a chicken um, is historically a lot longer than the factory farmed ones that we have now. Sure, okay. Yeah, they're not healthy. They're not happy. So the strongest version of a vegan argument essentially says that we shouldn't use animals as an end at all. So some vegans are actually, would view it as wrong to even shear a very happy sheep for wool. And that's like the strongest version of the argument that you can have. But for most vegans, there's a focus on the very real contemporary horrors of our modern food, clothing, and cosmetics industries. And we focused a bit on that in the vegetarianism episode, so I don't want to duplicate it here. Um, but I did find, a, I, I don't know if you've heard, ha, have you heard of the book Sapiens or Homo Deus? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so those there are two like best-selling, um, one was sort of like a look at the history of humanity and one sort of a look forward to what humanity might be in like a thousand years. Um, And they're both written by a famous historian named uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And he actually called animal farming the worst crime in history. So I think there's, there's something to be said for the sort of scale of atrocities that are going on in factory farming. And so a lot of vegans, they're not focused on a happy sheep being sheared for wool. They're focused on, you know, the cows and rape machines, you know? <laughs> <Like
0: there's... laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, maybe the really hardcore ones are like, oh, I won't have a happy, like, sheep sheared, but also I care a lot more about all of the other nonsense. Yeah, yeah okay. Okay, okay. I can get on board with that.
1: Yeah, I just think it's important to point that out because vegans get caricatured a lot, you know? Most of them are pretty reasonable people that are just reacting to a horrific situation. Well, I mean,
0: the far far end of any movement is going to be a little bit unhinged, no matter what they're advocating for, from what I can tell. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You're going to get people making you look bad no matter how noble the cause.
1: Uh, The other thing that vegans um, will uh, oftentimes point out is... They'll, they'll take aim at the idea that humane meat is actually possible, right? So in the vegetarianism episode, a lot of the times we were talking about how you can choose humane-certified alternatives. But for vegans, uh, they'll often say, look, if you actually pull back the curtain on what those farms are like, in most cases, they're not that all that humane. Like, cage-free eggs are really not all that much better for birds and can actually be worse. But even if you could have like wild game or truly humane farms, it would be impossible to build that out on a scale that could feed everybody at the current rate of meat consumption. Um, That would be an ecological... So we might as well
0: just be vegan. Yeah, so like
1: (laughs) really um, the argument is that you can't have animal farming be workable at all, at least on the scale of meat uh, consumption that we currently have. So they say really like... The rest of it is like they're all fig leaves. What you really need to do is eat animal free as much as possible.
0: I think I mentioned in the cruelty free episode that they have been growing like skin in petri dishes that they can like test cosmetics on, uh, which is pretty (laughs) bonkers. But also um, I've read a lot about um, lab grown meat in the last couple of years. I don't know where they're at right now, but... That would probably be the only ethical way to really have meat is like no animal was really harmed in the process. I mean, obviously, hardcore vegans are going to be like, well, they had to take skin tissue from someone. But one cow having some skin tissue taken could feed like hundreds and hundreds of people as opposed to hundreds and hundreds of cows feeding a few people. Yeah,
1: and we can talk about cultured meat a little later. Um, But yeah, it's uh, that and like um, plant based Uh, products that are meant to really mimic the flavor profile of meat are sort of two areas where you're starting to see a lot of growth. But first, let's talk about veganism and whiteness, because it is an important topic to cover. So the vegan movement has run into some issues when it comes to race and inclusivity. I don't think that this is something that it's not like inherent to the beliefs of all vegans, but it has been a real problem for vegan activists in the past and in the present. So, one of the main ways in which that's been true is um, attacks on indigenous hunting. So, I just want to first set out the justification why, sort of, when indigenous people are sort of pushing back against the the critiques that they've received from vegans, um, I want to just explain what that rationale is. For indigenous people, hunting is sort of viewed as a traditional way of life, um, and especially given the trauma that has been inflicted upon them continually since colonization and into the present. There's a view that um, the ability to connect to those traditions is a really important part of cultural healing and resilience. It's also being able to hunt is an important element of food sovereignty because these are often very food-deprived communities. Uh, So Indigenous people will point out that environmental stewardship and respect for the land and animals is embedded into their cultural traditions, that there's an ethic of not wasting and of really respecting an animal that's been killed. Um, So from their perspective, um, hunting is a morally justifiable part of their way of life and also sort of a, a crucial element of how they get by survive. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so vegan activists have often come into conflict with this because they've criticized indigenous hunting in various ways. And one of the, the sort of big hotspots of this was in 2017, there's a new indigenous owned and operated restaurant that opened in Toronto. Um, and it had seal and two items on the menu. There was a huge backlash, like the vegan community, targeted this restaurant in like a really strong way which is kind of hypocritical because there's meat on like a whole bunch of restaurants menus and also like this indigenous restaurant had made a point specifically of vetting hunters for whom they sourced the seal meat so they were actually doing a lot better than um
0: literally any other restaurant
1: restaurant. (laughs) yeah so like you can check out the documentary "Angry If you are interested in learning more about this issue, but just to say that like there has been a history of vegans targeting the seal hunt and indigenous hunting more broadly that has led to a lot of distrust um, between the indigenous um, between different indigenous communities. And uh, and
0: vegans, which is so frustrating because they're really on the same page about most things. And it's like, guys, if yes. you're going to attack anybody, yeah, like target
1: Tyson Foods. Don't target like the like indigenous individuals that are hunting sustainably within their traditional lands and like fighting for environmental stewardship you know those are your natural yeah, allies. and their whole way of
0: life will come crumbling down if they have to stop exactly yeah no I agree I am on the same page as you on that one
1: yeah so and it's not just um, anti-indigenous issues so vegan activism has also been criticized for racism against other communities. So in 2003, uh, PETA, the uh, animal rights organization released an ad that related the poultry industry to the Holocaust and that
0: was seen as being very insensitive. I think that that's not wrong to be seen as insensitive. Like it was that I PETA PETA exists though on kind of a platform of shock, you know? That's kind of how they have advertised themselves in the past and I'm not surprised that they went there. Yeah. For sure,
1: yeah, and they they but they received a lot of criticism for that, and I think they eventually did pull the messaging on that back. Animal activists have made similar associations between animal farmry, farming and slavery, so that also is a deeply problematic characterization. So there's it's not just um, anti-indigenous issues; it's also like the messaging that animal rights activists have used
0: have often chickens are the same as black slaves. Like, maybe not.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Like that. um, That's a deeply uncomfortable thing to say. And it's like, it's really no wonder that there's so much distrust um, between sort of certain animal rights activists and racialized communities. Right. So we also have to talk about The connection between veganism and white nationalism, because apparently Nazis ruin everything. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly,
0: I'm surprised it's taken us this long to have a Nazi conversation. (laughs) What is this, episode eight, nine?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I want to say the, um, I mean, this should really go without saying, but the vast majority of vegans are not white nationalists. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Most vegans are not Nazis. I would hope it was zero, but it's not, so we got to talk about it. Um, so... (laughs) There is evidently a sizable portion of white nationalists that are vegan, and there's a, a a Vice article that goes into this a little bit more. If you're interested, I don't know a lot about Nazi ideology. I don't really want to learn uh, <laughs> because I think we should just we should just shut that shit down. But apparently, there is something to do with the concept of blood and soil that like makes veganism something that some white nationalists like. Um, and his, Hitler was famously vegetarian. We we talked in the last episode about the like weird association between vegetarianism and uh, and eugenics, uh, because there's a certain element of the sort of previous vegetarian movement that was about sort of depriving yourself of pleasures, and um, it was about sort of achieving a perfection. And even though I would say that vegetarianism and veganism conceived correctly is actually about the respect for life and that should transfer to all human life. Um, There are sort of variants of the vegan and vegetarian movements that historically and in the present are deeply racist. And that's something that people just need to acknowledge um, because if, if that's not, if we don't recognize that it's true, it's not possible to actually like combat racism within the movement and to be anti-oppressive. And, like, weed it out. Yeah.
0: So, do you know, was Hitler's reasoning for vegetarianism, like, I knew he was a vegetarian, but I I try not to think about Hitler too often. Yeah. I'm on the internet often <laughs> enough that, like, I, people are always talking about it anyways, but was he trying to deprive himself of pleasure? Like, was, was that his reasoning, or did he... I can't remember why he was a vegetarian. Do you remember why?
1: Yeah, I don't know why either, but, like, I... I imagine it was this, like, in the same vein as, like, why Kellogg was a vegetarian, right? Like, the the whole deprive yourselves of pleasure, be abstinent, like, that sort of set of ideas was very popular at the time, and it was also often linked to eugenics, which obviously is something Hitler liked, so <laughs> it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me if that was the justification, <laughs> but I don't know, uh... There's enough shitty stuff in the world that I don't really think we need to spend time on Hitler, on Hitler in this podcast. we <laughs> <laughs> are plenty of people that have done that already. But yeah, just to say that there is a component of the vegan movement. It's a small one, but there is a component that is comprised of white nationalists. And that's something that it's important to recognize. A couple more things I want to say about veganism and racism. So... Until recently, there's been a lack of representation for Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, in animal rights organizations. And that's something that is starting to change. Animal rights activists now are starting to be really attuned to this problem. And they're they're starting to recognize the need to be more intersectional, both in their organizations and in how the movement's represented. So that means essentially taking seriously um, oppression and thinking about developing strategies that are more inclusive. So that is something that vegan activists today are really preoccupied with. And that's great, Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: great. Yeah.
1: Uh, So I found a really good article just to make this a little bit more positive (laughs) than it has been. Uh, I found an article by Gloria Oladipo, and she wrote an article for Afropunk that essentially explains how vegans can be more woke, which I think is... I thought it was really helpful, and so she essentially has four solutions. So the first one is don't culturally appropriate. So vegan versions of cultural dishes should come from members of that culture. So like, if you're a white vegan, maybe don't be making like Caribbean vegan food. You know, let the Caribbean community do that, which I think just makes sense
0: in in like in like a commercial sense. If you just want to make Caribbean food at oh, home, then yes, like, no shame. but don't like. I mean, appropriation
1: is about it's about exploiting and making money, right? So yeah, don't be making money off of like veganizing cultural dishes that aren't your own culture. Uh, the second one is that you should support initiatives that make plants more accessible. So she makes a really good point that food deserts are often in racialized communities. I know for sure that's true in Toronto um, and I would imagine it's true in like many other major cities. Solving that problem can be a first focus for animal rights organizations, because if it's easier for all communities to access affordable plant-based
0: food, more people are going to consider a plant-based diet. Yeah. You know why I ate cheeseburgers six times in December? Because they're a dollar at McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. So supporting community garden initiatives, even though that might not seem to be directly linked to um, animal welfare, it actually does have an effect on decreasing consumption of meat. So. Maybe that's a way to do that. That's a more effective way to approach a problem of uh animal consumption than throwing blood on people and like you know or throwing paint that's supposed to look like <laughs> blood on people and tell and shaming them for their their lifestyle choices you know yeah uh her third point is that more uh black indigenous and uh people of color uh need to be represented in the vegan movement so This is like um, a book that I was reading recently featured polling that shows that actually, despite the stereotypes, there is no difference racially in terms of the profile of vegetarians. So American vegetarians are equally likely to be black or um, like Latino, Latina, as they are to be um, white or any other racial background. So... This stereotype of vegetarians being so white actually isn't true, um, but it's sort of foundational to how animal rights activists have represented themselves for a long time. So the argument that's being made in this article is that you need to start visually representing um, BIPOC um, people and communities in the veganism movement so people see themselves in that movement. And you also need to meaningfully include them in leadership roles. And the last thing is just show up for the causes of racialized groups. So, so just acknowledge that like um, some of these communities go through a lot, and you need to actually be a good ally. So, show up at protests for their causes, even if they're not about you know, your particular cause of choice. Helping to be anti-oppression helps everybody.
0: Or, at the very least, don't, like, dox them when they make a restaurant (laughs) that it doesn't appeal to you, you know? Like, look at things a little bit more closely before you go and shit on them.
1: Yes, exactly. And just recognizing that not everybody can approach... I mean, this is applicable to all lifestyle issues that we talk about on this podcast. Not everybody approaches it from the same position, and so... Issues of race and class and various other things are very relevant to how people live their lives, and they mean that for some people it's a lot easier to adopt certain values into their practices, and for other people it's a lot harder, right? And you can acknowledge that without being a dick about it. (laughs) Yeah, but don't just acknowledge it, right? Like, that's step one. Step two is to actually help to overcome those systems of oppression. And if you're only doing the first one, you're not actually being a very good ally.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Thank you for correcting me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It got to show up, too. Yeah, anyway. So I want to be a little bit positive. Um, And the good news is that veganism is becoming a friendlier and more inclusive animal-free movement. That there. Really, the activists uh, today are, not all of them, but most of them are starting to see the errors of that sort of past behavior and are starting to sort of change their approach. Yay! Yeah. And that new inclusivity focus has really already benefited the movement immensely. So it's underscored a need to focus on institutional change rather than individual lifestyle choices. So uh, the animal rights movement a decade ago really would have focused on telling everybody to go vegan. Uh, But now uh, there's much more of an emphasis on telling people how fucked animal farming is and that laws need to protect animals better, which is something that people intuitively support. So there's a a book that I read for this podcast called The End of Animal Farming, and um, this is sort of one of the main points that the author J.C. Reese makes. So he essentially says shaming individuals for eating meat really undermines the movement, um, and shaming factory farms is
0: Way more effective in addition to being more inclusive. Yeah, because I don't know about you, but when somebody comes to me and they say, hey, uh, you've been living your life wrong for the last 29, however old I am, years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to change when somebody attacks me. I want to double down. You know what I mean? Like, what are you talking about? I wouldn't have been being evil for... 30 years. Don't judge me. You don't know me. Whereas if someone comes in and says, hey, isn't this thing that we're all a part of really shitty? Let's change it together. Then I'm more likely to be like,
1: yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, and there is like, I mean, his book goes into this in more detail. I'd really recommend reading it, even if you don't care about veganism that much. But he talks about how that there are psychological elements that make it more difficult to get people to change when you're telling them to change. Um, and that, If you focus on those collective goals, you actually bring people on side a lot more easily. And that, in turn, may make people change their behavior. Um, So that's really helpful from a strategic perspective, partially because there's already significant evidence to show that people aren't comfortable with factory farming. And that's something we said in the vegetarianism episode, but I actually found evidence of it for this podcast. So I just want to say it quickly. Uh, So there was a, a 2015 Gallup poll that asked... It asked basically whether people thought that animals deserve the same rights, some rights, or no rights. Um, And they found that 32% of Americans believe that animals deserve the same rights as humans, which is a pretty, like, I would not have expected. That's significant. Yeah. Uh, And then another 62% said that they deserve some rights. So that's a lot, you know? That's basically
0: everybody. Yeah. Um, Between the same and some, it's everybody. Everybody thinks that animals deserve at least some rights.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you're working from a population that's likely to be sympathetic. And so when you're when you're looking at it from that lens, it actually is super surprising that the animal rights movement hasn't had more success than it has. And the argument of J.C. Reese is basically, it's because we've been shaming people for all this time. And instead, you got to focus on institutional change. Um, oh, I just also want to note uh, California's Proposition 2, which is basically a ballot initiative to ban animal confinement in small spaces, it drew the highest positive turnout for any citizen initiative in the state's history. So people are on board with this stuff. Uh, that That is all the stuff on vegan activism. Um, do you want to talk about veganism as a dietary choice now? Okay, sure. Um, so as we mentioned before, vegans don't eat animals or animal-derived products, and that obviously includes meat, fish, poultry, dairy, and eggs. Uh, but one of the most difficult things about going vegan is navigating all of the secret animal products that are in our food. If you're interested in like trying veganism or just eating less meat and you or, or even if you just want to know when you're eating meat, because sometimes like you might be OK with eating meat on occasion, but you don't necessarily want it in your snack foods could be a reasonable position, um,
0: even if you're not vegan or vegetarian. Or if you're eating it, at least know that you're eating it. Like, I want to be in charge of the choices I make. Like, oh, if I reach for something that has animal product in it, I want to be doing it on purpose.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so there are a couple of places out there that have good tools for you. So PETA has a comprehensive list of animal-derived ingredients. It can be pretty overwhelming to go through that list because... I don't know. I found I found it really tough to memorize it um, because it's so long. And then you're reading through the ingredient list and you're like, I don't don't remember what these words that I didn't know before today. I don't remember which one of those were on the list. So does this complicated chemical ingredient like include meat or not? But it is out there. Uh, There's also your, well, not your favorite website, but a website you've cited before, (laughs) dummies.com. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, dummies.com actually had a really good list. It wasn't like as comprehensive as PETA's, which isn't that surprising, um, but it had a really easy to use layout, so I would recommend them. Um, And then maybe we'll just go through some of the stuff that has animal ingredients that you might see a lot.
0: Like the really common things that might surprise people?
1: Yeah. Um, So two common ones that won't surprise people are beeswax and honey. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah uh casein did you come across casein at all
0: no what is that
1: um so it's a milk protein that's derived from animals milk um and it can also sometimes show up in ingredients list as calcium case calcium caseinate or sodium caseinate so where
0: where what foods has that in it what is that
1: um i can't remember where i saw that and i don't have it written down but that's okay processed
0: foods Okay, fair enough. The freezer section.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Then there's a confectioner's glaze, which is also sometimes called resinous glaze, chillac, uh, natural glaze, or pure food glaze. Uh, So that comes from a hardened resinous material that's secreted by an insect called the lac insect. Uh, So that you will often see in candy. We will sometimes see it in fruit. (laughs)
0: What? How? Oh, <laughs> why? Yeah. Is not it because all the fruit is, is vegan. <laughs> is it? Wait, hang on. Is it because the insect lives inside the fruit and secretes inside of it? That'll no, be the it's only because there's fucking
1: would... wax sometimes on
0: fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and the wax is... Why? Yeah. Okay. So fruits and
1: vegetables, weirdly not always vegan. There was this whole thing. Um, there's a, a British coffee chain called Costa. Um, and... There's a group of people on the internet just freaking out because they found out that the bananas that uh, Costa sells aren't vegan.
0: What? bananas? They have a they have a cup. Com- they come with a case. Why would you need to put anything <laughs> on a banana?
1: <laughs> okay, so the wax. I am, I. I dug into this a little bit because it, it is kind of interesting. There's also a, there's a a screen cap of I can't remember what company this was, but there was a picture of like a soda drink. And it had a slice of lemon in it. Uh, and it was not vegan because of the lemon, not because of the pop. Uh, yeah. So um, some fruits and I had heard vegetables, but I'm not actually sure which vegetables. Um, they're sometimes coated with either beeswax or shellac. Um, and that makes the fruit look prettier and it can also reduce moisture loss and delay rotting. So it makes things last longer. So... Sometimes if you're going to the store and you're buying an apple, that may not be vegan, unfortunately.
0: I would just like to say, for the record, right now, my feelings on insects is that I am happy to eat them. I do not feel super bad. Maybe that will change as we do this podcast, but I will have cricket chips. Um, Give me some cricket flour, you know, beeswax, honey this weird insect that secretes onto my apples. I just don't feel as bad about insects. I feel, I won't buy like silk anymore. There, if I'm buying silk, I've killed a whole bunch of silkworms so that I can like wear something nice, but I can wear nice things without like buying silk, basically. So, but when it comes to food, I'm like, okay, well, I need to eat. Um, I don't need to wear silk. I don't need to eat insects, sure. But also I feel a lot less bad about eating a cricket than I do about eating a cow. Why though? I don't know. I guess I just don't care about bugs. I, I First of all, um, <laughs> I'm not the kind of person that scoops up a spider and puts it outside. I'm the kind of person that throws a book at it from across the room and just crushes it to death. Um, and I've always been that way. And maybe that will change. But I just, yeah, don't value insects the same way that I value cows. Maybe... Yeah, they'll do some research and they'll be like, actually, insects are as intelligent as human beings and mourn their dead. And I'll be like, ah, but I'm still gonna eat them. Maybe I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just um, I don't want to judge you too much on this show.
0: Oh no, here it comes. (laughs) But but
1: like, I mean, we talked about Peter Singer in the last episode, right? And uh, he would, I think, call that speciesist, right? And he would say that what we should care about isn't like our inherent empathy coding. That like, I mean, that's why people are upset when they find out that someone's eating a dog, but they're not so upset about cows, right? Like, you're just extending that same logic to ants, right? That, I don't know. Um, there are different ethical justifications for sure, and maybe some insects aren't as complicated, and so we shouldn't give them as much consideration. But from my point of view, if we know that insects feel pain, which they probably do, it's still ethically tricky to eat them, you know? The bival That's just my argument. view. Um, you can come to different points of view, but... Anyway, uh, (laughs) I don't know. I I I, I also
0: feel like uh, insects, it's harder to give them like as bad of a quality of life as we do to cows. Like you can give them more space. They're insects.
1: Yeah, but like, I I don't know. Like, conversely, if you're eating a steak, you're eating part of one cow, right? Um, If you're eating like a a burger made from crickets, you're probably consuming like five or six sentient beings, at least, right?
0: Oh, that's a good point.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The The point is it's complicated,
0: right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, when we do our episode on bees eventually, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which we're never going to do, we're just going to tease every time. Bees. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe you'll, I'll change my mind on that. I feel like I'm pretty flexible on my views. Yeah,
1: for sure, yeah. And, I mean, this is all, like, I mean... I can in principle think that, and probably at the end of January, I'll still occasionally eat cheese, and I'll consider myself a hypocrite for that, but the good news is I'm in good company with the rest of the world, but also thinks (laughs) factory farming is fucked and still eats animal products sometimes. Yeah. The good news, though, with fruit is that um, there are alternatives to animal-based waxes that are available, and some retailers will use those. The bad news is that they're both problematic also. (laughs) So so, um, one of the non-animal alternative waxes is, um, it's a synthetic uh, polyethylene wax, um, which is a petroleum byproduct. So in that case, it's linked to the oil industry. So maybe not so great for climate change. And the other option is carnauba wax, which is a palm derivative. And I think in a couple of episodes from now, we're going to talk about palm oil. So, just a spoiler, it's uh, fucked. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's not great, and it's in everything. But yeah, so your fruit may not be vegan because sometimes it's coated in an animal based wax.
0: So, the most ethical thing you can do is go to an orchard and pick your own fruit. So, everyone just go out and do that, no problem. <laughs> Easy peasy.
1: But well, what if you have to drive to the orchard and you're using a lot of carbon emissions? Oh my God, you're right.
0: <laughs> Everybody needs to walk to their closest orchard, <laughs> pick enough fruit to last yourselves the year, make jam out of it. I don't know. Although if you're making jam, it uses sugar. And in a few episodes, we're going to talk about the sugar industry. <laughs> the most ethical thing you can do is curl up
1: in the fetal position and not consume anything.
0: <laughs>
1: um, no, we're going to try to give you some more practical suggestions than that. Um, But a few more animal derivatives that you might recognize in common foods. So gelatin is a gelling agent that's derived from animal collagen. So that is often in candy. It's in most candies. This was like one of the things that was hardest for me when I became vegetarian was realizing that like I couldn't eat some of my favorite candies because they had gelatin in them. Um, But there is a fair amount of uh, non-animal based uh, candies out there that you can consume. So... Uh, then there's L-cysteine, a dough conditioner in some prepackaged breads and baked goods. So, even though bread usually doesn't need to contain dairy products, oftentimes if you're looking at grocery store bread, it'll have this in it. So, you you can't eat that if you're vegan. Uh, then there's whey, which is in way too much stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> ah! <laughs> 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 Ooh.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you'll remember from the nursery rhyme, whey is, it's basically the liquid that re- remains once milk has curdled or it's been churned and strained. I found it a lot in chips. That was where I saw it. Um, it's, I don't know why, but I guess it must add some kind of flavoring that companies like. Did you, did you see like
0: any of these ingredients and in things? Perhaps I did. And I just didn't realize that they weren't vegetarian, but I don't think I've seen way on anything I've been trying to buy to be. I mean, lately I've been trying to just buy fresh fruits and vegetables. Apparently those aren't vegan anyways, but
1: <laughs> I like it. You just went to one in one ingredient, uh, things and you're just making your own stuff. I try. Yeah. To be vegan.
0: It, it, literally yeah. like, um, a couple of times I was like, I'm really craving chips. So I did look at things, but if I am looking at an ingredients list and I don't recognize an ingredient. Usually I'll Google it or I'll put I'll just put the item back on the shelf. I'm like, well, if you're not going to tell me what this is, then I don't want to eat it. So
1: yeah, definitely. So then there's also lactose that I, I also found in like a lot of packaged foods. Um, it can also show up on ingredients list as uh, saccharine lactin or D-lactose. Um, so it's essentially a milk sugar
0: Yeah, that one I did know. I do recognize lactose on stuff is like, well, better not buy these. Although usually if I'm looking at something, I'm like, I know this is going to have milk products in it because it's cheese. It's cheesy chips. That's what I'm looking at. (laughs) Oh, are these cheddar chips vegan? No, probably not.
1: But even like ketchup chips or salt and vinegar, like most mainstream browns will have milk in their flavoring. The other one, uh, vitamin D3 or omega-3 fatty acids, um, they can be made without animal products, but oftentimes if you see those on an ingredients list, they'll be from animal-based sources. If you don't specifically see that they're not, assume that they are as the general rule. Um, and then additives beginning with E. So if you see something like E904, um, oh, interesting. that's going to be usually animal-derived. A lot of the E additives apparently are. So those are some ones to look for if you're trying not to consume animal products and like um, processed or packaged foods. You want to talk about meat substitutes now? Okay. So I'm curious, if you were to guess, uh, when do you think the first uh, reference to a plant-based food that mimics animal flesh is from? When?
0: Yeah. Um, 2007. 2007. So it's actually 965 AD. Oh, okay. Well, I was wrong. I'll see myself out. I would not
1: have guessed it either. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Drastically earlier than I would have thought. (laughs) Um, And it was a a magistrate in a city in China that encouraged tofu consumption as a more frugal alternative to animal flesh. Um, And he referred to tofu as mock lamb chops, which I think is kind of interesting. I love that. Uh, Tofu tastes nothing like lamb chops.
0: <laughs> no, it does not at all. But what a great way to convince people to at least try it.
1: Yeah. So that is like the first reference um, in history. But it's like kind of a cheat because it like not tofu. It's its own thing with its own taste. It's not like specifically developed to mimic the the taste of meat, at least on its own. Uh, so the first reference to vegetarian meat wasn't until 1852. Um, and Oh, it just sounds revolting. It was a reference to a sausage-like mixture made by squeezing chopped turnips and beets.
0: Oh, oh, those are things I don't even eat by themselves.
1: (laughs) I know. Um, So, like, it's no wonder that vegetarian burgers
0: for a really long time
1: had a reputation for being awful. (laughs) God. Today you can get really good ones, but if... If someone tried to feed me chopped turnips and beets and told me it was a sausage, I also would not have been on board. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the first recorded veggie burger was made in 1939. And then um, sort of the most famous um, meat alternative, tofurkey, probably most people have heard of it. Uh, It was introduced in 1995. So this is pretty recent,
0: actually. Not as recent as 2007. So I'm just going to lie down over here. (laughs)
1: Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, like, I think it's the the point is that like meat based alternatives today, we're seeing such an exciting explosion of uh, new products that actually, like people have sat down and thought about it and tried to make it taste as much like meat as possible, not to get vegans on side, not to get vegetarians on side, but to try to get the sort of like aspirationally more plant based people, you know, people that do eat meat that want their cheeseburgers. It's a bigger market. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the products are just Im- improving as a result of that. Cause you've got a potentially much larger market. Uh, so beyond meat and the impossible burger are sort of like the two behemoths that we talk about um, today. Um, and they were both released around the same time, which is only a couple of years ago. So it's, you know, when you say 2007, like that's not actually such a bad guess because those companies weren't even around back then. Right. Like, Yes, there was Tofurky, but how many people were eating it, honestly? <laughs> and yeah, um, oh, I also have a fun fact about Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else will find this fun, uh, but they're both founded by people whose last name is Brown.
0: <laughs> oh, that just makes things confusing.
1: <laughs> yeah, basically the same product. There are like slight differences. Um, and one's founded by Ethan Brown and the other's founded by Patrick Brown. No relation. <laughs> no, I don't think so, Yeah. So there was a difference in the strategy that both of them employed. So I've never eaten an Impossible Burger, uh, and I'm I'm not sure exactly what they taste like. But Impossible Burger, they focused on high end, the high end market. So they started to release the burger in trendy restaurants. That was sort of their approach. Um, and Beyond Meat was like, "Fuck it, we're going straight to the grocery store." <laughs> and then of course, AW. Um, so the plant-based food industry is now big enough that it has its own industry association, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and there are a lot of plant-based startups, um, that are out there and a lot of, um, big companies that are starting to create their own plant-based foods. So Unilever, um, they were kind of assholes cause they sued one of the first egg-free mayonnaise companies, um, and they got a huge amount of backlash for it. And now they have their own egg-based, like egg-free mayonnaise. So, uh. They've joined the party, I guess. Uh, General Mills in 2016 invested in a nut cheese and yogurt company called Kite Hill. And Tyson Foods, the chicken company, um, has also invested in Beyond Meat. So a lot of big food companies are recognizing that plant-based is the way the market's going, which is, I think, pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So you mentioned uh, like lab-grown meat. Uh, So there are a bunch of different names for this. Cultured meat, cell-cultured meat, cell-based meat, in vitro meat, and clean meat are other terms that you might hear, um, and they're also really new, and the idea with cultured meat is basically that you actually get a product that not only just mimics the, the um, properties of meat, which is what the plant-based burgers do, but they actually are meat, they're just not from animals, they're through like cell cultures, basically. And the earliest case that I was able to find of uh, cultured meat was from 1998 when a NASA-funded group of engineers grew goldfish meat in vitro, but they weren't actually able to eat it because it wasn't (laughs) FDA-approved. So uh, they made these, like, uh, lab-grown goldfish that they made into fish sticks, um, but they couldn't eat it. So (laughs) apparently they smelled exactly the same. Um, And then the first time that cultured meat was actually eaten, um, at least that we know of, uh, was in 2003. And it was an art exhibition of cultured frog meat that was created by an Australian artist. And it was like this big art exhibition in France that I'm sure was meant to have some point. I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes I feel like art exists for art's sake. Sure.
1: Yeah. So I, I think it's kind of interesting too, like the animal rights movement has had some debate on Like which plant-based alternatives should you be focusing on first? And there's some idea that like if you're focusing on reducing harm, you want to reduce consumption of chicken meat, eggs, and fish meat because there's a lot of harm associated with those products and a lot of animals die for that. So like if you're focusing on just what's going to reduce the harm, having plant-based alternatives for chicken, eggs, and fish is like where you should start. Um, but on the other hand, there's, like, a need to focus on what's the easiest thing to make an, a plant-based alternative to, um, especially, like, in the early stages. So the focus instead has been on dairy and eggs because um, that's just
0: easier from a technological perspective.
1: So that's all the research I had. Do you want to talk about um, – do you want to talk about our challenges?
0: Yeah. Um. I think I'll go first this time because I don't have very much to say on this one. I think I covered most of it at the beginning. We're – 2 weeks into it now. We're recording this episode on January 13th. Shout out to my birthday. <laughs> I have failed a couple of times, I will be honest. Um not just because obviously I didn't buy the Campbell's soup, but there's it's just it's it's exactly as hard as I thought it would be basically. I I knew going in, especially after we did a vegetarian challenge that I would struggle. On the very first day, I was on a tour that I think I mentioned to you where basically I, as a tour guide, take bus loads of tourists into different locations in Canada. And I was in the Rocky Mountains for New Year's with a bus. And I was like, really looking forward to this trip. It's like, it's going to be amazing. And then on January 1st, when we were supposed to come back to Vancouver, they closed the only... There's, Canada has one road, and they closed it for avalanche blasting. And we were stuck in the middle of nowhere BC for a very long time. And then, and then when we started to like go finally at the end, like we... By the time we <laughs> left the town that we were stuck in, it was basically the time where we were supposed to be getting into Vancouver. So we were stuck for a long time. And I was like, right, we do not have time to stop and, like, get people dinner, especially since there isn't anywhere in the middle of BC on January 1st that's going to be open anyways. So I told the whole bus that I would order them pizza. We ended up getting stuck in traffic because there was a car accident after the avalanche blasting for, like, three hours. We were just sitting still outside of the middle of nowhere again. So by the time we got to the pizza place, it was, like, (laughs) 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) First of all, I tried to order a vegan pizza and Domino's in the middle of nowhere BC was like, nah, dog. (laughs) (laughs) So I did try. uh, And then I could have run to, there was a Tim Hortons open for like 10 more minutes up the street. But my position as the tour guide was to stay with the bus. So I broke down and I had some pizza. Uh, That was on day one that I failed right away. (laughs) And it made me very sad. uh, But also the pizza tasted so good. I had such a bad day.
1: yeah in extenuating circumstances I, I think. feel
0: that's why I had to explain yeah. myself. The other times that I failed was that um, I accidentally eat a piece I accidentally ate a piece of chocolate that was sitting in the break room at my other job <laughs> and it was like in my mouth and I was like, oh shit <laughs> uh, and then yeah the other literally the other two times I failed was when people gave me free chocolate <laughs> so <laughs> That was on me, but I otherwise Sorry. I feel like I'm doing really well. Uh, what about you?
1: Yeah, so um, I failed one time, uh, and I think it just comes down to planning. Uh, so I had not gotten up early enough in the morning to eat breakfast before I was in the airport for my flight, and uh, I looked and looked and looked for vegan food in the Edmonton airport, and I just could not find it. The only thing that I thought might work is, like, getting a smoothie from Booster Juice that just didn't have dairy, but I did not think that would fill me up for the entire day, uh, so I broke and got pizza also. Uh, so... <laughs> I figured, like, if I'm going to fail, I might as well fail big, right? Right. Um... <laughs> So yeah, that was my my one. Uh, otherwise, I've been doing pretty well. It was a lot harder when. So for the first six days of the month, I was with my parents, uh, still celebrating the holidays in uh, suburban Alberta, and that was difficult because like none of their items and that they have like just as snack foods or whatever, very few of them were vegan. So. It was this weird position where, like, at first I had bought some groceries, but then it's close enough to me leaving that I'm, like, not going to buy a bunch of stuff to just have sit in their house. So by the end, like, by January 5th, I was literally having meals of Triscuits and peanut butter. <laughs> like, it was so sad. Um, but since I've gotten back, it's been a lot easier. And I really have to shout out, um, a couple of my friends just hosted a Ukrainian Christmas dinner. Yesterday, it's like a little late, but they when they invited me, I was like, so I'm doing Veganuary <laughs> and I do not expect you to cater to my needs because they've already for years been doing it as like a vegetarian. Well, they have like they, they cook salmon, but like they make sure that there are vegetarian options for the people that go because a, a number of my friends are vegetarian. But neither of them are, and it's like, you already go so far to accommodate that, that I'm not going to make you make everything vegan. So like, the first dish that you have in Ukrainian uh, Christmas dinner is like this, um, it's basically like wheat oatmeal. It's really tasty. It's my favorite part of the dinner. But it's like, (laughs) it's just like sweet wheat. Um, And so I'm like, that, that is vegan. So I'll eat that, and then I'll eat the borscht, which you already make vegan anyway, um, and then don't worry about it anyway. But they, they made me special vegan pierogies, and I was so
0: excited. <laughs> That's really sweet. That they can be your really shout-out of the week.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I thought, I thought that was really nice. Otherwise, I've been just kind of enjoying going to vegan restaurants in Toronto, because there's actually, like, a lot on offer, and there are places that I... Had been meaning to get to, but hadn't. So I've
0: actually been eating really well. Mm, nice. Yeah. I, I don't go to restaurants very often anyways, because I am too frugal, but I have yeah. gone to a couple of restaurants with some friends in the last couple of weeks, and there was one of them, I was, they were like, oh, let's go out for dinner. And I was like, sure. Um... So I'm doing Veganuary. <laughs> I do yeah. not expect you yeah, to you cater to Yeah, you have to have that me. conversation, yes. eh? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you do not have to cater to me. But then we went to, we ended up going to an all vegan restaurant anyways called uh, Meat uh, in Vancouver. Maybe you guys, maybe listeners know it, but there's a meat in Gastown, there's a meat in Yaletown, and there's a meat on Main, and it's just this fully vegan restaurant. And it's the, honestly, it might be the best poutine I've ever had in my life. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I'm going there tonight for my birthday dinner. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So is that it for us then? Is that our vegan episode? I think so, yeah. Oh, amazing. There's so much good information. Um, I do want to
1: give one more shout out. Um, I know I already did one, but I also well, want Well, you didn't to- really.
0: Well, you didn't say their names. Who is it? Tell us.
1: Uh, so Ian and Zoe, they were wonderful in accommodating me at Ukrainian Christmas. I also want to shout out Robert uh, because Robert is vegan and gave me a lot of tips on stuff to read for this
0: podcast, which...
1: Uh, was immensely helpful in prepping for it. So thank you, Robert.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like doing these shout-outs. They make me feel very happy with uh, our friends and the people who support us. Uh, do we have, like, a call to action this week? Is there anything people can do other than Veganuary, which is obviously done by the time this episode rolls out?
1: <laughs> so for the vegetarianism episode, we suggested that people try to reduce their meat consumption. So maybe for this one, uh, try a vegan restaurant.
0: yeah. Try, if you're in Vancouver, try meat. I love it. I've been there three times in the last month, and I don't even eat restaurants ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, and if you're in Toronto, Planta is incredible. Um, I've had... I didn't even know this was possible, but I had incredible vegan sushi at Planta Queen. So good. And if you're in Edmonton, because I know a lot, a lot of our listeners are Albertan, the Buckingham has the best vegan chicken wings I've ever had. I get them every time I'm in Edmonton, and... I could eat them every
0: day. (laughs) So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get us on Twitter, we are at Pullback Podcast. If you want to send us an email, we're at pullbackpod at gmail.com. We're on Instagram on Facebook. Send us a nice message. It sustains us. Leave us a review. We love it. It's my birthday. So leave me a birthday review on iTunes. That would be incredible. Five stars because it's my birthday. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we'll catch you next time.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday. I thought I was such an asshole. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: Uh yeah, I was just going to drop that on you like halfway through. <laughs>